This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Live from the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice. Brian Kilmeade. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. It's the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hope you had a great weekend. But if you're watching the TV, follow the news, care about this country, it's hard to imagine you had that good of a weekend unless you had some overwhelmingly great news in your family because ultimate humiliation when it comes to uh, what is happening uh, with Afghanistan and a war that we fought for 20 years but have not been active uh, since 2014. Defensive posture. have not lost a man or woman uh, in 18 months. This was an exit. We knew about it. We knew the president had a plan in place. Fine. But not this plan. And how about this being no plan? We have the latest from the spinmeisters at the Biden, uh, at the, with the Biden bunch at the White House. But we have not heard from the president. We heard, saw a statement. Blame everybody but himself. But not heard from the president. This hour we're going to be joined by Liz Cheney. And we're going to be joined by David Loing who is an award-winning foreign correspondent for 30 years for the BBC and author of the upcoming book, The Long War, The Inside Story of America, Afghanistan, Since 9-11. Big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We've got to do mitigation, put aside all of these issues of concern about liberties and personal liberties and realize we have a common enemy, and that common enemy is the virus. Exactly. Anthony Fauci continues to astound with his idiocy. Let's give, let's give up on personal liberties. That, that sounds great to me. Mass mania has Americans at each other's throats. The mass in schools, work, and games is facing opposition everywhere as Dr. Fauci urges America to give up all your rights. Number two. I've talked to Border Patrol agents. I've talked to high-level Border Patrol agents. They, are, they say there are no discussions ever with the Biden administration about actually stopping illegal immigration, just dealing with the logistics. Unbelievable. That's Ken Paxton, who had some success. Border crisis rocking our nation, spreading the virus through the South. But a big court win gives them some hope. Remain in Mexico, back in place. Now somebody should ask Mexico if it's okay. Number one. Whatever happens in Afghanistan, if there is a significant deterioration uh, in security, um, that could well happen. We've discussed this uh, before. I don't think it's going to be something that happens from a Friday to a Monday. Oops, that's exactly what happened. No, it's not Saigon 1975, Mr. President, and your Secretary of State. It's worse. It's the only way to characterize one of the most pathetic days in U.S. military and foreign policy history as the Taliban take Kabul. Their gutless president flees and ours is MIA, and we have a shuttle, uh, and we have to shuttle our remaining people and our Afghan allies out of the country, and now we've stopped all flights because of the chaos at the airport. Unbelievable. To put it in perspective, Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, Congresswoman, welcome back. Hey, Brian. Thanks so much for having me back. I, I mean, listen, you're one of the few people not surprised by this, right? No, it is. It's it's devastating. Uh, it's certainly heartbreaking to watch the scenes from the airport. Um, and, and you and I have talked about this for years. Uh, you know, my view has been that having 2,500 to 3,500 U.S. forces on the ground 
to conduct counterterrorism, counterintelligence, to help us make sure that the Taliban wasn't able to take over, that they weren't able to um, continue to provide safe havens for al-Qaeda, um, that, that that was um, an important um, deployment for our security. And we've watched just the, the absolute devastation of the last three or four days uh, because uh, of the determination that we needed to withdraw completely and because of the way that uh, that the Biden administration is conducting the withdrawal. It's really devastating. Uh, I want you to hear what Jake Sullivan just said. Now, I was doing Fox and Friends, so I missed it. He was on NBC. Here's what he said when we when he was asked about this being a Saigon moment. My, Michael Walsh told me this is not true. He says that you can get back and forth in a vehicle. But listen to him try to explain that this isn't like Saigon 1975. Cut to. To be fair, the helicopter has been the mode of transport from our embassy to the airport for the last 20 years. But you know the larger point. It's not the that helicopter. Is how we move it's not the mechanism. Forth, so. No, no. It's to the last-minute scramble. You know that. It's the last-minute scramble when the assurances from the president himself were this was not what we were going to see. It is certainly the case that the speed with which cities fell uh, was much greater than anyone anticipated, including uh, the Afghans, uh, including... Uh, many of the analysts who looked hard at this problem. Analysts? Hard at the problem? What about your Secretary of Defense and Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? I don't know, Congresswoman, you have better sources than I do. Did they give him bad advice or did he ignore it? Uh, I think that he ignored the advice of his military leaders. Um, and look, you know, Jake Sullivan is right. This isn't Saigon. It's far worse. Uh, when When you have a situation where the very terrorist organizations that uh, housed al-Qaeda, that housed ISIS, but that housed al-Qaeda as they planned and launched the attacks against us um, are now back in control of the entire country. They're going to establish a caliphate. Um, it, it's just it's, it's, uh, the, the damage to our national security is significant. Uh, the prisoners that have been released, the extent to which this is going to change what we have to do in order to keep ourselves safe. Um, just a, a massive, massive failure. Uh, now, and look, you know, Brian, we talked about this too. I, I think the agreement that the Trump administration negotiated with the Taliban in 2020 was a surrender agreement. And, and that created a situation where we were legitimizing the Taliban and shutting out the Afghan government and, and set us on the path we're on now. So it's, this is the consequences of a policy of, of American uh, retreat and withdrawal, and it's very dangerous. But they violated uh, everything that they agreed upon. They said they wouldn't move on the government. Uh, they they actually, uh, on that framework that they laid out, I was not for. I wouldn't have been talking to him, period. President Trump wanted to get out. But in speaking with their officials this weekend, including General Jack Keane, they were under the belief after the election that President Trump never would have gotten to get this far. And if you don't believe that, maybe you have a right to not believe it. Then think about this. His ego wouldn't have let him allow the Taliban to take over Kabul in three days. He would have stopped it in its tracks. Well, look, I mean, I, I'm not going to argue with you about the size of President Trump's ego. But, but I would just say this, that um, this push to withdraw— uh, the 5,000 prisoners that were released as a result of that agreement, the fact that uh, Mike Pompeo is the first secretary of state in history to meet with the Taliban, the fact that they were considering inviting the Taliban to Camp David on 9-11, um, I mean, that, that set this all in motion. And it was we were told uh, by President Trump, by Mike Pompeo, that the Taliban was going to renounce al-Qaeda, 
we were told that the Taliban was going to fight terror, the terrorists for us. It just none of that happened. And I think, you know, what we're seeing today absolutely is the responsibility of Joe Biden. But I, I think it's really important to take a step back and say, listen, you know, the United States has to do what's necessary for our national security. And in Afghanistan, that meant um, having the counterterrorism and counterintelligence capabilities that 2,500 you know, forces on the ground gave us. Now we don't have that. We're seeing what happens when we retreat. And, and we've got to think about now, as prisoners have been released across Afghanistan, you know, these global jihadist movements are going to benefit from that. And, and we're going to be in a situation where uh, there are going to be additional requirements because of heightened threats uh, in order to keep us safe from Islamic terrorists. Uh, I Listen, uh, General Austin... He's been doing this, what, 45 years? He did not know the quality of the Afghan forces, really? Oh, really? The General Milley did not know the quality? He said, well, General Austin says, well, I, I couldn't, I didn't know they weren't going to fight. How, if you, didn't, if you ever well, had a boot I mean, camp, you know the quality of your fighters. Yeah, I, I guess I would say a couple of things. I, I think that, that we will find that the military advisors, the military, the commanders here, uh, that President Biden ignored their advice. You know, General Austin is somebody who... who he said on uh, a conference call in, that very thing, what I just said. He blamed the Afghan yeah, forces. I mean, yeah, no, I was on that call. Um, but but they know, they've now got to carry out the orders that, that President Biden has issued. Uh, I think when you, you know, I think it's wrong to start talking about, well, the Afghan forces don't have the will. You know, we completely stripped them of air power. Uh, we, you know, put them in a position where we'd been been working with them, helping them. They had air support. They had our trainers. With 2,500 forces, we were able to prevent the catastrophe that you're seeing right now. So I think it's wrong to blame the forces, but exactly. I do think you'll find this was a decision made uh, contrary to the advice that the president was getting from his senior military leaders. Absolutely. So uh, we're talking to Congresswoman Liz Cheney, uh, who knows enough about national security as anybody uh, in Congress. Uh, and the White House, to be totally candid. Congresswoman, when you look at this, we basically set them up and talking to people this weekend, almost like an American force to a degree. They used to having commanding officers. But guess who their commanding officers were? Americans. So you could want to fight. But if you don't have a captain, a lieutenant, or a colonel to turn around and say, where do I go that you believe in, it's over. And that's what happened. We totally left. So listen to Richard Haas, who agrees with you about the agreement the Trump team cut, cut 25. He's the president of the Council of Foreign Relations. I would actually think the agreement we signed with the Taliban in February 2020 was a disaster. It undermined the Afghan government. It asked virtually nothing of the uh, of the Taliban in exchange for our withdrawal. And Mr. Biden, who hasn't been shy about changing mm-hmm. all sorts of other policies he inherited from uh, uh, Iran to climate change. Why was he unwilling to change this policy? Do you have an answer to that? And do you agree with his assessment? I agree with him. And and the idea that the Biden administration is somehow saying we, we didn't have the ability to change the bad path we were on, it's ridiculous. We've watched him change policy after policy. And and so that you know, look, he he bears responsibility for this. He made the decision. And look, just one example, you know, when they set the date certain of everybody's gotta be out by I think they said August thirty first ultimately. Um, you know, that meant that we had to start basically uh, evacuating, turning back over uh, our bases in the country, including Bagram. And the, the devastation and the tragic scenes that you're seeing today out of the Kabul airport, we wouldn't be seeing that if we had held on to Bagram. So there were a lot of decisions that, that were made that 
you know, the military uh, determinations about how to conduct this withdrawal, clearly um, the people need to understand what went wrong here. This, uh, this is certainly not – we should not have been withdrawing in the first place, in my view, um, but the idea that we've got these scenes of death and chaos is really uh, – it, it's just going to be hugely damaging for the United States globally. You know, people will look at that. How do you think people in Taiwan feel? How do you think people in Ukraine feel? Watching these scenes thinking, well, can we count on America? And, you know, America's security uh, depends upon our allies being able to count on us. So we've got we've to fix uh, this. It's not going to be easy. Uh, it's going to require new leadership for the country um, and a new commitment to uh, reasserting America's role in the world and, and recognizing that weakness is provocative. So I want, I want to project now instead of right now we're in a situation where we stopped in fights, the civilian fights to get civilians out because we had a couple of guys get caught in the wheel wells. They were hiding in the wheel wells. They died. Uh, and you saw the you could see these images now of people as the planes taxiing all these Afghans running to keep up with him as if, let me on this plane, all right? So they have stopped these flights. Now, there's, a, there's allies of ours and might even be Americans in uh, Mazari Sharif and Kandahar and other major cities that are going to need to be picked up via Chinook helicopter. And what do you expect to happen? They say, the Taliban say, we're not going to attack at your airport. But it was shoulder-fired missile at one of our choppers going into one of these cities where we no longer have assets on the ground. Can you tell me how you expect this to play out? Well, this is this is a complete um, mishandling by the military uh, of uh, the orders that were, you know, misguided orders from President Biden. Um, you know, we cannot be in a situation where we have Americans trapped on the ground. Um, we cannot from a, a moral standpoint and also from a national security standpoint, be in a situation where, you know, we've, we've committed to people to, if you help us, we'll be here for you, um, the Afghans, and that we then abandon them. So we've got, we've got to ensure that we can get Americans out. We have to ensure that we can get um, uh, as many of our Afghan uh, translators and, and those people who've been working with us out as possible. I mean, it is, it is a, a real shame and a stain uh, on the Biden administration um, when you watch how this is being uh, implemented over the last several days. Uh, and they they need to make sure that they are committing the resources necessary um, that we, we get out, you know, every single person we can, that we right. do not leave people behind who helped us and worked with us for so many years. Now, are you stunned that the president, and I'm, I'm up against a break, but you stunned the president remains at Camp David, quiet, silence, no even guarantee he's going to speak today? Yeah, he has to speak to the nation. I mean, you, this is it's outrageous uh, to have this kind of, of catastrophe unfolding because of a decision, directly because of a decision he made. Uh, and to have him be silent, that, that is not leadership. He needs to speak to the country. He needs to explain why he did what he did. And he needs to tell us what he's going to do to protect us from the growing jihadist threat that we're going to face as a result of this really misguided and, and you know, just fundamentally dangerous decision that he made to pull all our forces out of Afghanistan. All right, Congressman Liz Cheney, thanks so much. Thanks, Brian. I appreciate it. Talk you, to you, soon. you got it. one 408 Coming to you on a need-to-know basis, because, man, do you need to know. You're with Brian Kilmeade. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. 
Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. As many of you know from your own life experiences, a life in so-called blue-collar work is something to be proud of. It is very rewarding to work that has impact on your friends, your neighbors, and your family's lives. Great successes can be had in the blue-collar career. There's no degree requirement for achieving comfort, peace, and freedom. While schools cut shop classes and funnel students into colleges, there are plenty of options for hard workers who are ready to take advantage of open positions. Many young people today assume that college is the only way to achieve success in life. That is not true. Let me introduce you to Ken Rusk. Ken spent his younger years digging ditches and working in construction. He never went to college. Instead, he made goals, planned, and worked hard for 30 years. Now Ken is a successful entrepreneur with multiple businesses and revenue streams. In his national best-selling book, Blue Collar Cash, Ken shares his insights from over 30 years of working in blue-collar trades as an entrepreneur, mentor, and life coach. Now he's created a guide made specifically for you and your unique situation. This guide will give you or someone you love the tools you need to start designing the life of their dreams. You can achieve your dreams regardless of your educational background or your past. Go to KenRusk.com path to learn more. That's KenRusk.com path. Information you want, truth you demand. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. I think it's it's fair to say that the U.S. decision to uh, to pull out has uh, accelerated things, but this has been many in many ways something that uh, has been a, a, you know, a chronicle of a of an event foretold. We've we've known for uh, a long time that this was the way things were going. Well, we lost two thousand guys. That was Boris Johnson, Prime Minister of England, and he lost four hundred. And he found out via press conference that, uh, and so did all of NATO, that President Biden was pulling everybody out. You know, so I know about the plan that was in place. I also know some military people that were tight with the president who he listened to and politicians. He said the president never would have exposed if he thought for a second that the Taliban was just going to take back the country in a matter. This was eight days, eight days. They started moving eight days. If he thought saw that happening, he wouldn't have let it happen. Simple as that. And, and I believe that Trump, if you look at Trump's track record, I don't know if you've heard, but he hates losing. That would have been an example. And I didn't want to talk about Donald Trump today, but I want to put in perspective how foolhardy President Biden's move was. And I want to go to this guy's name is Tim Neftali. He's a CNN presidential historian. CNN, cut 28. If Afghanistan res- returns to being a safe haven for Islamists, what have we spent 20 years doing there? So yes, we beat Al-Qaeda. We beat that generation of Al-Qaeda. But there is another generation, which we saw with ISIS, of Islamists who are willing to do harm to to to, to the Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my (laughs) name is Chad. His name is Jonathan. But you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Rest of the world. 
Are they going to find a home in the, in the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan? That is the great challenge. And if that occurs, this is the Saigon moment for President Biden, and that this will be a legacy, an albatross around his neck for the rest of time. And that is a CNN historian. I'm surprised they didn't cut his mic. Uh, that's what's going on. Outside Fareed Zakaria, who mysteriously is still trying to blame Trump for everything, supposed to be the deep thinker internationalist. He used to write for uh, Newsweek International magazine. Uh, but he's so anti-Trump, he can't even admit any of this. But I also think it's important for people to, to know what else is being said. David Sanger of the New York Times writes, seven months in which his administration seems to exude much-needed competence, getting more than 70% of the country vaccinated, engineering uh, surging job growth, and making progress towards a bipartisan infrastructure deal. Everything about America's last days in Afghanistan shattered that imagery. Shattered. Until the surge happened, that's the same way they were describing what happened with President Bush, 43, and then the economy collapsed. He's just now recovering. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. From his mouth to, to your ears, ears, it's Brian Kilmeade. This is not Saigon. We went to Afghanistan 20 years ago with one mission, and that mission was to deal with the folks who attacked us on 9-11. And we have succeeded in that mission. Remaining in Afghanistan is not in the national interest. That is Anthony Blinking. He's doing the impossible job of trying to explain the ridiculous way in which we lost and the humiliation which we all feel as Americans after 20 years in war. And we are not getting the results that America needed, and that is security here at home. In fact, General Milley, chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, came out and said we're going to reassess the threat, the threat, the terror assessment, threat assessment here in America after the fall of the Afghan government. David Loyne joins us now, an award-winning foreign correspondent for 30 years for the BBC and author of the upcoming book, The Long War, The Inside Story of America and Afghanistan Since 9-11. David, welcome. Did you ever predict Brian, this? Brian, it's good to be with you. Yeah, I just can't wait well, to get your perspective. Did you predict this? <laughs> Absolutely not at this speed. And I think actually not much at all. I think, you know, I thought, and I was on the radio in the UK only last week saying, and I was completely wrong, that Afghan special forces at least would hold out, that the Taliban might take the countryside, but that the cities would hold out. But, you know, there's a military saying, at the end of the river, the river flows fastest. And I think that that's what's happened in Afghanistan. Uh, once the momentum was with uh, uh, with the Taliban, Afghan forces just folded up ahead of them. The morale was completely hollowed out by corruption, frankly, and by the very remote sense that they had from the the central government, and it all folded. And there were also some pretty distressing stories of commanders being paid off by the Taliban to hand over their weapons and, and hand over their men. So, I mean, it's been an extraordinary uh, uh, thing that's happened in the last few days, and all of us who've you know, I first went to Afghanistan in the mid-90s. In fact, I was with the Taliban when they took Kabul in 1996. And then it was a much, much longer, much more difficult battle. You know, from their point of view, it took them 18 months to take the country and they were fighting against, uh, you know, civil war bandits then. Now they're fighting against an army of 300,000 that, you know, we have financed and trained and supported um, over the last 20 years. And it just folded up overnight. Wow. And for you to be that shocked, it shows where we are. So 
this is, so right away the spinning starts. Well, this was a bad deal I inherited. Uh, I can't make the Afghanis fight. No one knew 300,000 uh, Afghanis were going to quit. Was there ever 300,000? Well, I think that's one problem. Because of the corruption, the forces were hollowed out. They talk about ghost soldiers, about platoons of, uh, uh, where, which were just there on paper, but they weren't actually there in the barracks because the commanders were stealing the money. There were terrible stories of fuel, food and ammunition being taken away from soldiers before it got to them. They weren't paid properly uh, because of the corruption. So I think, you know, the morale for soldiers in the ranks has been really, really low for some months. And they, they weren't, they didn't feel that they were fighting for a state that regarded them. So they stopped fighting and, uh, and ultimately surrendered. So I think it's been a, it's been a really, you know, sad story in terms of Afghanistan. But it, it I mean, the future looks, looks terrible. You'll, you, you'll have seen all the pictures from the airport of people trying to leave because they know what the Taliban can do. And the Taliban are doing that. We're seeing in the streets of Kandahar, men who worked with Afghan forces, worked with American forces, worked as interpreters for the British or whatever, taken out of their houses, bodies just left in the street. There's an amazing tweet by an American soldier who left Kandahar in February on Twitter this morning with lots of Afghans around him, and he says that all of those Afghans he knows are now dead. So I think the Taliban are moving in very quickly in pretty unpleasant ways into the places where they're going. And of course, you know, life for women in Afghanistan, which has changed in the last 20 years. We haven't done nothing. The intervention wasn't wasted. Um, we've created a new generation of Afghan men and women in a very young society. Um, but of course, that's just uh, disappearing overnight as women's rights are being trampled on by the Taliban, who are taking them as sex slaves, really effectively taking young women as their wives, inverted commas, in villages that they're taking over. So in many ways, this Taliban is actually worse than the Taliban that took over in the mid-1990s. Uh, and you're the guy that knows. Here's what Mike Pompeo said. Uh, like, I thought that Karzai lost his mind and Gahani was better. You know, Mike Pompeo says, absolutely not. This guy was taking money by the millions. He left before, instead of trying to lead, he left. This is what he said uh, yesterday, Cut 26. Think about President Ghani. He spent all of his time lobbying Washington, D.C., Republicans and military leaders, the same folks you probably just talked about. If he'd have spent that time building out friends and coalitions and working with the Taliban himself, we could have gotten to reconciliation. Do you agree with that? I, I think um, I, there's a lot to be said for that. I mean, I worked actually, I worked 2017 to 2018. I worked um, on a USAID contract advising in President Ghani's office. Um, advising on communications, and I got to know him very well. And I, I mean, I knew him in the past, and I knew some of you know the staff around him very well. Some of those staff are now saying today, people I've spoken to, you know, he shouldn't have run. That didn't look good. He and and his very close closest advisors, closest political friends, uh, left early yesterday, um, leaving effectively the country uh, behind them. I think. I mean, he's a he's a complicated character. I think in many ways an admirable leader. He had a desire to create this different kind of society in Afghanistan. Um, and, and in many ways, he succeeded. Uh, you know, something emerged from it. But he, he all the way along, and it's true, there were people around him stealing a lot of money. Whether he personally was corrupt, uh, I, I don't think so. And I, don't, and I didn't see that myself. But certainly there were people very close to him who he appointed, and he knew they were stealing money, and they were stealing money um, from, from, effectively, our taxes. Um, particularly your taxes. I'm, <laughs> I'm in the UK. America has spent 
you know, up to $2 trillion altogether on this project over the last 20 years and, and, and lost all those lives. And I think, um, you know, it, it, we have created a different kind of society. Ashraf Ghani was one of the people who helped to try and create that different kind of society. But we certain, certainly didn't leave a functioning democracy that people were prepared to fight for. And that's the consequences that we've seen over the last really few few hours, few days, as things have just collapsed in front of our eyes. So, David, tell me, we talk, by the way, we're talking to David Loin, who spent decades in Afghanistan. He's got a book coming out called The Long War, The Inside Story of America and Afghanistan. David, um, we could, this is what I heard happen. In terms of, and you tell me if this is overstating it, in terms of when we said we're leaving and left and took the air power as well, as well as the contractors, we were the leaders of the Afghan army. As, as doubtful as some of them may be, as tenuous as some of their loyalty was, we were the leaders. That was the advantage. That was yeah. the protection. And when we left, they were not capable of standing up to the Taliban, who all they do, they live in a, a world of strife and war. Yeah, I think that's I think you've got it exactly there, Brian. I mean, I think that's exactly what happened. We pulled the rug from under the Afghan, the Afghan army, effectively, and they did seem to rely on, on the Americans in a way more than perhaps people had thought. Um, and, and not just the Americans, you've got to remember. And one of the really key things about this, it was a multinational coalition. At the end, the Americans were only a quarter of the troops who were there. There were, there were some 10,000 uh, NATO troops, uh, Turks uh, at the airport, Brits at the airport, Germans in the north, Italians in the west, who were, along with the Americans, providing a very different kind of security for Afghanistan. I think the Taliban were, were not taking them on. I mean, they agreed not to take them on at Doha. So for the last couple of years, there's been a sort of truce between the Taliban and the international community and no American lives lost and no fighting on the ground. But pulling them out with so quickly in the way that this administration did has had this really rather extraordinary effect on the country. And I mean, I go back to what Joe Dunford said, General Joe Dunford, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs and former commander in Afghanistan, who brought out a report in January, February this year, uh, soon after the inauguration of the Biden administration, um, saying that you know, we could keep troops effectively there forever. Two, two and a half thousand, three thousand U.S. troops, not a huge number, not a huge cost, given the fact that America has troops in 140 countries in the world. And the sense of just holding on to them for much longer. And he said this could become a crucible for Islamic State or for international jihadis within 18 to 36 months, is what he said in, in February. Well, it's turned out to be 18 to 36 hours. But, you know, we, we, with this administration, with the Biden administration, I, one, of the, one of the more interesting chapters in the book I've got coming out next month is, is about the Obama administration in 2009, when Joe Biden came in as vice president. And he was the strongest voice in the White House. I interviewed a number of people who were in the White House at the time. He was the strongest voice in the White House to pull troops right down to the minimum then. He wanted a 1,000 troops for just counterterrorism operations. And during all those arguments in 2009, when General Dave McKinnon was fired and, and Stan McChrystal came in as, as the commander in Afghanistan, and you'll remember we went from something like 50,000 U.S. troops until 18 months later, there were 100,000 U.S. troops of a total coalition of 150,000, the so-called surge. Those decisions were made really against the guidance, good wishes of, of Biden, and Blinken and Sullivan were with him then, Blinken, the 
at state now, Jake Sullivan, national security adviser, were very strongly alongside um, Biden at the time saying, "Keep no more troops. The generals are always boxing us in. So I think what's happened this year is when people like General Joe Dunford were saying, hold on, keep just a few troops. We could keep them there for a while. You know, let's see what happens to this Doha deal. Biden was once again thinking, I don't want to be boxed in by the generals. It's 2009 all over again. I'm just going to pull them out, if not now, when? And off, off, with, in a sense, the cover of the Trump deal, which wasn't a good deal. I mean, it was just a withdrawal deal for the U.S., but he didn't have to uh, go all the way along with all of the troops out as quickly as he's done this year. And that's been the right. that's been the mistake, I think. I know you do this for a living, but I was able to do, since I know so many of the Trump people very well, and a lot of them are contributors yeah. here, talk extensively this weekend. And, and just from what I know of the President Trump, if you think for a second his ego would have allowed Kabul to fall within hours on his watch, are you kidding? He wouldn't allow, he wouldn't allow it to happen. And the thing is, too, he needed to see this. And I talked to General Keenan. He said, listen, I had talked to the president. He said, you're making a big mistake on this. He said, after the election, we'll revisit it. But I want just to build up your point and to further it. You might, this might even be in your book. Today's playbook, uh, uh, playbook had this quote from member Richard Holbrook. He was yeah, yeah. Obama's special representative to yeah, Afghanistan yeah. No, and Pakistan. I, absolutely. No, I knew him well. He said um, he had this interaction with Biden. It was in, this was in his diary. He's passed away. The U.S. had to leave, according to, um, according to Joe Biden, the U.S. had to leave Afghanistan regardless of the consequences for women or anyone else. According to Holbrook's diary, when he was asked about American obligations to Afghans like the girls in Kabul school, Biden replied with a history lesson from the final U.S. withdrawal from Southeast Asia in 1973. F that. We don't have to worry about that. We did it in Vietnam. Nixon and Kissinger got away with it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm glad you brought that quote in, Brian. And if you haven't, I think I might have done. I had it available um, because, I, I, you know, I, I saw that that was being pulled out and people were, were tweeting it in the last couple of days because it did, it did absolutely say, you know, what, what Joe Biden wants uh, internationally and ter- certainly in, in, in this war, this sense that war should only be for very specific American interests. And the idea of staying in places for a long time um, doesn't necessarily defend uh, the United States or, or other countries in the world. And, uh, you know, I think we, you know, we, we're, we're going to see the, the consequences um, in, in, in the months and, and years to come. And, you know, clearly, al-Qaeda are close to the Taliban. Clearly, um, uh, Islamic State uh, are close to the Taliban. I think one of the reasons why the Taliban have been so ferocious and violent in, in, in recent days in, in the provinces is because they want to show that they're the biggest, baddest jihadis around. And, you know, this is, uh, this is potentially a narco state because they have a huge amount of, of, uh, of finance from, from heroin and now from methamphetamine, um, which, is, uh, which they've got methamphetamine factories, which are, are, are converting pretty simple crops. There's a, 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 effectively a weed in Afghanistan called a cedra, which just grows everywhere, which they've discovered how to turn into methamphetamine, and that's flooding uh, Europe now. And I thought the Taliban so stopped, we, we think, the, uh, stopped the drugs. That's not true? Well, well, they did back in 2000, 2001. Um, yes, successfully, mm-hmm. and in a way, you know, more successfully than anyone who came afterwards. Um, and they were then 
much more idealistically opposed to drug uh, 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 drug manufacturer and taking money from drugs. But that's changed, and they they're, they're now you know very tied up with criminal enterprises. Um, so you have a you have effectively a narco state that is deeply opposed to women's rights of any kind. And women right across Afghanistan want a different kind of life now, not just women in the cities. This is not just a Western obsession. They really are, spent a lot of time in Afghanistan, they really are different now to what they, they were. So the Taliban don't govern by consent, but they govern through violence. And so we have this narco state now, you know, um, equipped with high-tech American military equipment, which is the, all of the material that's just been left effectively intact from, from Afghan armed forces. And it doesn't feel a very good moment for the world. And it's certainly, it's certainly not America's finest hour. It is, in, uh, David. In, and as it was brought up by Liz Cheney 20 minutes ago, what do you think of your Taiwan right now? Uh, are we, we going to defend? Are we going to defend them? What about Cuba? Are we, do we care about freedom? David Loin, I cannot wait for your book, The Long War, The Inside Story of America and Afghanistan Since 9-11. As we see how this turns out, love to have you back. Great. Look forward to it, Brian. All right. And he's at David Loin, L-O-Y-N. You can follow him on Twitter. Back in a moment. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. A talk show that's real. This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Certainly a cause of concern. They have very uh, significant masking requirements there, but it is certainly possible. But, you know, let nobody try to say that's why the U.S. is in trouble. The rate of uh, infection in Mexico is actually lower than it is right now in places like Texas and Louisiana and Florida. I think that's a bit of a distraction. We've got enough of a problem with our own citizens who have refused to roll up their sleeves. Right. Uh, this is unbelievable. This is why Dr. Francis Collins, who's Anthony Fauci's boss, can is uh, pure politics. Now, if I was to describe to him uh, what was going on in South Dakota with those bikers, he would say, well, that is so irresponsible to get everybody together. But if we have 1.3 million people who have come to our country illegally without vaccination, without anything known about their background, and they've been dropped off around the country, how dare you say that they have nothing to do with this pandemic spread? You can't. We had two people in Washington State and we had a global calamity with 600,000 people died. Pure politics. Dr. McCarry sees through it. Well, it may not be driving the spike, but it's certainly a problem. And he did say in that interview that Mexico actually has a lower rate of infection. We don't know that. Do you really trust the testing in Mexico? Do they have the tracking infrastructure to know their true case count? If you look at the hospitals, say, in Mexico City, right now they are overrun. So it is an issue. And remember, uh, Dr. Fauci, Walensky, uh, Dr. Collins, you know, they're political appointees. Mm -hmm. And so you're going to hear, you know, a a sort of message that's consistent with that. Just look at their position on school closures last year. They were quiet. And look at their position on where on kids wearing masks outdoors, something that we all consider ridiculous. None of them said anything about either of those issues. Exactly. And by the way, I'm watching Joe Biden land and get to guest camp, camp David. He's wearing a mask outdoors. So is his wife. What the hell is he doing? What are you doing? A mask outdoors, alone in an airport. 
in 2021. Hey, go to BrianKilme.com, order any of my books on history. I'll make sure to sign and send. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. From the Fox News Radio Studios in New York City, giving you opinions and facts with a positive approach. It's Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everyone. It's Brian Kilmeade. Welcome to the latest moments of the Brian Kilmeade Show. Coming to you from New York, heard around the country, heard around the world, and around the world. Our focus, of course, is Afghanistan. Michael Goodwin standing by to discuss that, as well as the demise of Governor Cuomo which has been a spectacular, epic fall. And then uh, Kathy Hochul able to speak as the future governor of the state. And uh, by the way, a lot of people are extremely upset he will not be impeached. Uh, Rick Perry at the bottom of the hour. Not only does he know President Trump, he also knows Texas, he knows the border problem, and he also knows energy. Rick Perry live. Let's get to the big three. Now with the stories you need to know, it's Brian's Big Three. Number three. We've got to do mitigation Put aside all of these issues of concern about liberties and personal liberties and realize we have a common enemy, and that common enemy is the virus. Exactly. I was dying to put away, uh, put, uh, put aside my personal liberty. Mass mania has Americans at each other's throats. The mass in schools, work, games is facing opposition everywhere as Dr. Fauci urges Americans to quickly give up their civil liberties. As Joe Biden would say, no joke. Number two. I've talked to Border Patrol agents. I've talked to high-level Border Patrol agents. They, are, they say there are no discussions ever with the Biden administration about actually stopping illegal immigration, just dealing with the logistics. Unbelievable. Uh, border crisis rocking our nation, spreading the virus through the South, but a big uh, court win gives them some hope. The Remain in Mexico policy reinstated for now. By the way, has anyone told Mexico? Number one. Whatever happens in Afghanistan... If there is a significant deterioration uh, in security, um, that could well happen. We've discussed this uh, before. I don't think it's going to be something that happens from a Friday to a Monday. Oops. Make that Friday to Sunday. It's not Saigon 1975, Mr. President. You are right. It's worse. It's the only way to characterize one of the most pathetic days in U.S. military and foreign policy history. As the Taliban take Kabul effortlessly, their gutless president flees and ours is MIA. And we have to shuttle our remaining people and our Afghan allies out of the country in humiliating fashion. And the whole, all hell is broken loose. They've stopped the fights because so many Afghans are flooding the plane as it lands and taxis. They're jumping onto the landing gear, jumping onto the fuselage. I'm not kidding. New York Post, Fox News contributor Michael Goodwin. Michael, what a spectacular failure by President Biden. Good morning, Brian. Uh, It is extraordinary. And for those who were too young or or missed the fall of Saigon, uh, this is is what it looked like. Uh, The Americans running away. Uh, folding their tent, leaving behind the people who had whose side we were on, and, and they had helped us, many of them. And now you see this fear of the Taliban butchery. And for the president to have missed this, for his entire cabinet to have missed this, for the military, for the intelligence, uh, th- this is a, a failure across the board. But, you know, Brian, I, I, on some level I think it's – there's another element to this failure, too, and it is 
the failure to explain why we were in Afghanistan all of these years, and you read and you watch all this, oh, it, 20 years of wasted. I beg to differ. Uh, Dan Crenshaw, the Texas congressman who served, uh, talked about it yesterday on television, and I think he got it exactly right, that this was a successful mission. After we had figured out, I mean, don't forget, Barack Obama called it the smart war, tripled the number of troops briefly. At the end, we had roughly 3,500 soldiers there, mostly of the SEAL variety, uh, special, special ops kind of people. And they did what, what we had wanted to do all along, which was simply to prevent Afghanistan from becoming another safe harbor for terrorists who could attack America and American interests abroad. And so that mission was succeeding. As Crenshaw said, there has been nothing like 9-11 since uh, we went into Afghanistan, which is, of course, where 9-11 was hatched and carried out from. And he, as he noted also, we have not suffered, a, a, the military has not lost a single soldier since March of 2020. So this mission was succeeding. Why was it necessary to end it? What is, the, what is the argument? I mean, Joe Biden calls it the forever war. But as Crenshaw says, this was not really a war for a very long time. So did President Trump, though, Michael. Uh, and, and I no, was totally I, against it. I agree. It. I agree. Trump, Trump made the same mistake. But Biden, Biden's the one who pulled out without any preparation, True. without any True. warning, without any help to those who helped us. I mean, this is on Biden. Trump made the mistake of signing the deal with the Taliban. But as Trump has said, he made it clear to the Taliban that if they attacked Americans, we would come back in with force. Biden, Biden just wanted out, period. And there's a way to leave and, uh, that works and a way to leave that didn't work. This is all on Biden. It is. No doubt about it. It's on Biden. And the worst is yet to come. This is not done. We're not even able to look back no. yet. We got about fifty to 80,000 people to get out. And guess where they're going? To U.S. air bases, to U.S. military bases, where I guess more money out of the military budget because we already have illegal aliens there. Congressman Michael Waltz says Biden's eyes were wide open. He knew exactly what could happen. Cut 17. The Congress was briefed that al-Qaeda fully intends to take advantage of the vacuum caused by Taliban advances uh, to reconstitute. They're going to grow back like a weed and uh, once again strike the West. And he also was briefed. General Milley now, according to Jennifer Griffin's reporting, gave an impassioned push before he committed to the pullout to keep 4,000 troops there because he knew what could happen. General Austin, I don't have any use for him. I don't think he said anything of use yet. Remember, Milley's an advisor. Austin is the Secretary of Defense and a 45-year general who knows the exact region. So he pulls out, and this guy, General Austin, is like, well, the Afghans wouldn't fight. I couldn't have predicted that. Yes, you could. Can't you ex- if you cannot assess a fighting force, uh, you shouldn't be running a single boot camp, let alone be uh, a, a four-star general in the army. But, but, but yes, and uh, uh, Brian, I agree with all that. But but I think it's it's still important to to focus on the fact that it, it was working. 
that the Afghan army was sufficient as long as it had American air power and American uh, trainers on the ground. It's the minute we pulled out that they lost all of that fighting ability. Absolutely. And I think you can't separate those two things. It was the pullout that triggered the meltdown of the Afghan army. And they were, they were fine two months ago. What happened that they that yes it's terrible that all the money we spent on training and weaponry but the fact that that Austin and others didn't see this, didn't recognize what would happen. I mean, I don't know how any of them keep their jobs. Where is Anthony Blinken? The Secretary of State said we may refer the Taliban to the International Court of Justice. Really? That's going to stop them? I mean, this is nonsense on stilts, the way this administration has behaved from top to bottom. I don't think there's any question about it. Dave Ignatius, who really knows the region, knows people. Cut 31. As I go over my notes, Mika, uh, for the last 12, 15 years, these, these themes are there every other month. Every other month I'm reading uh, a, a, a sergeant or lieutenant say, you know, these Afghans just can't fight. They're not getting it done. And yet every month, the senior commanders keep telling the boss, it's going to be okay. You know, we're going to stick with the mission. And everybody's inside this bubble. And that happened again, clearly, in this final with- withdrawal. The senior leadership could not tell Biden. If they, if they knew this was going to go bad, they could not tell Biden the dangers and get him to stop. Well, that's not, I, I don't even, uh, the first time I heard that soundbite, I don't believe that because we know for a fact that they recommended and Anthony Blinken did not push back. President Biden was told, keep about 4,000 troops there. And he went against all his advisors and said, pull out. It's the same feel, that's the same feeling he had in 2009 with McChrystal. Remember the Rolling Stone story? He wanted to yeah. pull everyone out. It caused all this resentment with McChrystal's people. It appeared in the thing and cost McChrystal his job. You know, he told everybody, told Mattis, we're pulling everybody out of Iraq. We got ISIS out of that. Again, he continues to be wrong about every national security and foreign policy uh, decision for four decades. Only now is the worst. And where is he, Michael Goodwin? Where is he? He has not spoken yet. Yeah. You know, Brian, uh, he's missing in action. And uh, in my column Sunday, I I talked about the other thing that he did uh, with the southern border. I mean, you take these two things together and think of the just think of the humanitarian crises in Afghanistan and the southern border. All those people coming here, so many of them COVID infected, being being let into the country. Uh, These are two disasters that did not need to happen. He did all all he needed to do was let things continue as they were. Neither one of these were pressing problems that he needed to to fix. Instead, he, he undid the success that these 
two missions were. And again, back to Afghanistan, I think it's important to recognize that we were not going to have a World War II-style victory. That was not the goal. That was, and, but nobody was explaining that. Nobody was saying, this is, this is good enough. We are keeping the Taliban and al-Qaeda and ISIS and everybody else from taking over Afghanistan and using it as a safe harbor. We were succeeding in the, in the bare outlines of that mission. Why did Biden have to break that? Why did he feel it necessary to pull out that way? Why did he feel it necessary to undo all the, all the border measures that President Trump had, had brought to bear and that were working? I mean, this, this to me is the, uh, the, the definition of his presidency. These are defining moments that show what his presidency has been. In my column, I mentioned Barack Obama's line that uh, Joe Biden's ability to F F up everything. I mean, that's what he's done here. He has screwed up things that weren't broken. He has broken both of these things. He has, and it's uh, this is by far the biggest thing. He thinks he's, we're just going to forget about it. We will not forget about it. We haven't forgotten about 1975. That was two years after he left in 1973. So we had two years, and we couldn't handle that. This was eight days. So listen to what Richard Haas said, hardly a fan of the pres- President Trump. He's president of the Council of Foreign Relations. Cut 25. I would actually think the agreement we signed with the Taliban in February of 2020 was a disaster. It undermined the Afghan government. It asked virtually nothing of the uh, of the Taliban in exchange for our withdrawal. And Mr. Biden, who hasn't been shy about changing to all sorts of other policies he inherited from Iran to climate change. Why was he unwilling to change this policy? Why? He uses he uses Trump said, well, he left the border a mess. And his statement reflected that. And he said, Donald Trump left this deal. I was boxed in. You weren't boxed in. And this report, in case you have not heard, chaotic scenes in Kabul's international airport right now. Afghans are scrambling in the hope of catching up to an evacuation flight. Three jumped into U.S. troops shot and killed two armed men at Kabul's international airport. Did not know that. Three others died trying to jump into the plane, got caught in the landing gear, and were crushed. So now they're stopping flights for the moment. Do you believe that this is happening in real time right now? And and this is the United States of America. This is how we're leaving. I mean, Brian, these images and this memory will not uh, will not be short lived. This is this is going to define America to the world. I mean, we do not look like a great superpower. We look like a third rate power, scrambling to save our own and abandoning those who helped us all these years. I mean, it, it is a tragedy in every sense of the word, both the human humanitarian aspects, the the foreign policy aspects, the image of America, the, the trustworthiness. Who would trust America now? And you know, we have we have soldiers in over a hundred countries and we cannot afford to keep 3,500 troops in, a- in Afghanistan to protect our own national security? I mean, something is seriously wrong with this White House and with the, with the State Department and the Defense Department that they bungled this this way. All right. Uh, thanks so much, Michael. There's so much to go on. We need another – I need another three hours. Michael Goodwin, <laughs> New York Post, thank you. And by the way, his great column this week talked about how the rivalry between de Blasio and Cuomo actually hurt us more than anything. And hopefully this new mayor and governor will get along. They're in the same party, for goodness sakes. Thanks, Michael. My pleasure.
pleasure, Brian. All right, listen, we'll take your calls next. I see you up there. I know everyone. not everyone agrees with me, and that's fine. Makes the show better. Bottom of the hour, Governor Rick Perry. Expanding your knowledge base, it's Brian Kilmeade. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of the story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. A radio show like no other. It's Brian Kilmeade. Initially, when this was just in Wuhan, everyone was saying, the kids are not getting sick, the kids are not getting sick. And then we've been trying to tell people, actually, no, the more this goes country to country, community to community, the kids are getting very sick. And I think now with the Delta variant, you know, the data is still to come. We can't make any conclusions before we have actual studies and data. But something here is different. Something here is very serious. And it could just be that this is very contagious, that this is spreading to the unvaccinated, as we mentioned. But something here is different. You can't ignore the numbers and you can't ignore the people on the front lines that are saying, you know, this is different from anything we've seen before. Wow. So that's a doctor from Columbia saying this is different, uh, putting more panic into this entire thing. Even though the numbers are low, the cases are up. Uh, let's go out to Orlando. Eric. Hey, Eric. Hey, Brian. Once again, your show is spot on everything. You guys just played a clip about Dr. Fauci talking about sacrificing uh liberties again yep. and freedoms well not too long ago our uh, supposed former republican governor arnold schwarzenegger made a statement about screw your freedoms yep and uh i think the world needs to google who his father was because we'll see about freedoms and he was just photographed coming out of a gym i think it was friday with a bunch of other guys no masks big cigar in his mouth so he's living he's another one of these uh People that are, uh, you know, they're just saying, oh, I feel for this and I feel for that. But do as I say, not as I do. I guess celebrities are immune from all that. So I'd like to see how everybody's going to react. But uh, that, I think thanks, Arnold Eric. knows his career is over and he's got nowhere to go. So. All right. We'll see about that. Dave, W-H-I-O. Hey, Dave. Hey. I, hi, Brian. I just think that the biggest issue is going to be our southern border. I think we're going to wish that the wall had been completed. I mean, now that al-Qaeda is going to have a chance to take over Afghanistan, I mean, those guys are going to look for opportunities to come and attack us. They're not happy with the United States. And the, how are we going to stop them? We can't stop anybody from crossing that border. Yeah. So the biggest issue, I think, is what's going to come. Absolutely. They've already changed the threat assessment, upped it. That's what General Milley just did. And, you know, we're, we're looking at a total mess. There's no winners here. And as was brought up by Liz Cheney at a previous hour, uh, what do you think if you're Taiwan? Uh, what if you think that if you're Japan, what are we going to do? What about if Cuba was holding out hope that people have some semblance of a life? They can't count on us. We just abandon uh, our Afghan allies and the people we trained for 20 years and then I'm not being willing to fight. Unbelievable. When we come back, we'll be joined by uh, Governor Rick Perry. He'll be talking all about the border as well as uh, as well as this variant, how it's affecting Texas schools, how uh, the Dallas community and others are pushing back and want a want a mask mandate. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. 
The more you listen, the more you'll know. It's Brian Kilmeade. Certainly a cause of concern. They have very uh, significant masking requirements there, but it is certainly possible. But, you know, let nobody try to say that's why the U.S. is in trouble. The rate of uh, infection in Mexico is actually lower than it is right now in places like Texas and Louisiana and Florida. I think that's a bit of a distraction. We've got enough of a problem with our own citizens who have refused to roll up their sleeves. So maybe that would be a better thing to focus on if we're trying to end this. NIH Director Francis Collins say, don't worry about the border. Yeah, there's some. But Mexico is actually doing a better job of the virus than we are. We don't worry about that. Now, let's think about this for a second. 1.3 million minimum, forget about the gotaways, have gotten across our border, including a record high, 21-year high last month, 67%, 70-plus percent, I believe, came through the Texas side. So Texas having a huge problem with this virus, right? So is Florida. And guess what? So are a lot of other states. When they get dropped off, when you have 1.3 million people hopping on buses and dropped off in various places around the country without even telling us what's going on, how could you possibly say none were positive and they're not seeding the nation with ever variant or with ever COVID-19 directly? Governor Rick Perry joins me now. Governor, do you believe how these doctors play politics? Brian, thank you for, for having me on. And, and uh, yeah, I, I really like Francis Collins. I mean, we worked with him when we were at the Department of Energy. But, um, you know, this may be an avenue that uh, he may not be the best spokesperson for. Uh, I, would, uh, I would suggest someone like Dr. Brad Joie, uh, who is the uh, Assistant Secretary of Health, who dealt with this issue very closely, uh, lives here in Texas now. And uh, he might be a better person to pick the brain of, so to speak. But here's the bigger issue, Brian, from my perspective. It's not, well, Mexico's doing a little better job. Let me tell you one of the reasons I would suggest to you Mexico's numbers are not what the United States numbers are, because they don't test anywhere near as much as we test. So the, the idea that they know how many people, when they come across the border and we test them and we're seeing 40% yeah. uh, of, of uh, in, infection, now we can start talking about what actually is the level. But with disregard all of that, to allow this mass immigration into America, people who we don't know who they are, we don't know what diseases they're carrying, we don't know what drugs they're carrying, we do know for a fact that all of those things are happening, plus the sexual assault and the, and the, and the trafficking of, of, of people. This is stunningly uh, lack of focus by the administration from the standpoint of helping Americans, yet I think they're doing it on purpose, Brian. I, I, I truly believe that the Biden administration, uh, the people that are telling him what to do, completely believe that if we will open the borders up, we will have a voting uh, a group of people that will be there forever, that will vote Democrat, and the Republicans will never come back into office. That's so you think that, but that's intentional. The only problem is he, he's paying such a political price for it. Now you have uh, 40% of the people think he's doing a good job at the border when it was at over 50%. Then you have, when it comes to COVID, he went from 67% approval now to 52% approval, uh, which is way too high. But now he decides to vilify your governor as well as the Florida governor, except for solving the problem. Let me ask you, uh, when, it come, when it comes to the border itself, you were frustrated with President Obama. How does that compare to what we're dealing with now? 
Yeah, I, I made the statement that I didn't think there could be a president worse than Jimmy Carter when it came from just not understanding how to govern, being a weak uh, individual when it comes to a lot of different issues. But Joe Biden's proving me wrong. Joe Biden will be a worse president than Jimmy Carter. And Obama's policies that we saw uh, are being uh, are, are being put into place by this administration. This seems to be a, uh, if you will, the individuals who were working in the Obama administration, whether it was Blinken at the DOD, uh, or excuse me, at the Department of State, uh, or, or other people are having those policies infest, if you will, uh, Biden's administration, because I, I don't have any other answer for it except it has to be a continuation of the Obama immigration policies. I think it was in 2012 that we had kids on top of trains coming down. Uh, I went to Dallas to meet with him and told him, I said, you got to deal with this or we're going to deal with it in Texas. We started Operation Linebacker uh, surging into regions. The problem is Texas is big and as capable as Texas is. We don't have the resources and or the manpower to really protect the border from this mass immigration. It's going to require the federal government and a full-on effort. We know how to do this, but this administration has basically said, we want to let these people come in, and we don't care who they are, where they come from. Uh, and with what's going on in Afghanistan today, with the Taliban now taking that country over, I can promise you the southern border of the United States is going to be an access point to do terrible things to America, and they know that they can come across almost unscathed. I understand. Listen, uh, on the other thing when it comes to do with the virus, and by the way, General Milley agrees with you, what you just said, the mass mania, we know your governor says, I want to leave it up to parents. I don't want them to have a mandate. So 40 Texas school districts are defying the governor, putting a mandate in place so they're going to sue each other. Two counties in Florida are defying their governor. What do you do as governor uh, if you're in this situation? Well, and and hopefully on a different uh, uh, program, we can come on and talk about some technology that has science behind it. Because I think you deal with this mass mania with science and the science of an integrated viral protection, a device that will kill 99.99% of the COVID. Uh, it will be an investment in the future because it kills influenza, it captures and kills, uh, kills anthrax spores. Widely deploying that across the state of Texas, across the state of Florida, and they're already in some of the schools in uh, the, the, the state. But integrated viral protection has the technology to basically say to those woke on the left who think that masks are the be-all to end-all, you know, uh, that you can wear a mask if you want, but it's not going to be anywhere near as effective as this technology in your schools. There's one public school up north in Fort Worth called Slidell. They've had these devices in their school for a year now, since last September. Not one contact tracing back to that school with these devices in place. That's what I would do if I were the governor of Florida or, or, or of any other state for that matter, and deploy these widely. You've got all this money coming from the federal government. Deploy it 
deploy it wisely, and I'll guarantee you that that's the type of science that will make a difference. In the short term, right now, where do you stand on the mass mandate? As governor, do you want to give local municipalities their freedom to make their own decisions, or do you want to give parents uh, their decision uh, right away uh, to make to put their kids in? I would. I would give it to both, Brian, uh, because the way Texas is structured, I'm a big believer in, in, in local control, whether it's the 10th Amendment of the United States back to the states or whether it's back to these schools. Let the parents and the school districts, because those school districts are elected by the, the voters in those districts. So I do think that the let, listen to the parents, listen to the voters. And at that particular point in time, and give them some options like this integrated viral protection so they can say, look, if you want to wear a mask, you're free to go wear that mask. But here's the technology that we've proven. When you got all of these institutions, including national labs that have tested this and said it does what it says it does. It kills 99.99% of the, of the COVID uh, virus, whether it's the Delta or the Lambda, uh, Lambda or whatever the next one is. It will, it will capture and kill it. That's the type of science that we can hang our hat on that even the, the most jaundiced on the left is going to have to look at and say, huh, I can't argue with Argonne National Lab, MIT, Texas A&M, University of Texas, the biocontainment lab in, in Galveston. That's the type of science. That's the type of story that I hope the governors across the country will stand up with and say, this is what we're hanging our hat on. About four days ago, the president of the United States asked OPEC to start pumping more oil. You used to be secretary of energy. Would, and, and we know President Trump has said that before. What's different now? Why was there such outrage around the world when he said that, excuse me, around our country when he said that? Because his policies, whether it was shutting down the Keystone Pipeline, whether it was sending the message to the Russians that it's okay for you to finish your pipeline, but we can't do it in America, uh, the, the, the war against fossil fuels that this administration has obviously gone against. When Donald Trump was talking about this, America was not yet energy independent. During his administration, we became energy independent for the first time in 70 years. And in a short seven-month period of time, the Biden administration has turned this on its head and put America back in the position of begging OPEC to deliver. I mean, can, I mean, can you imagine? We went from being completely and totally uh, independent of any other country for our energy needs, and today we're begging OPEC, which includes Iran, I might add, a country that hates us. Yeah, and we're helping them. We are, and we can't drill on. Uh, we it can't drill stunning. on federal land. It's nuts. And they said, "Why not just ask yeah, Texas I mean, it, to drill it, more?" It just, I, I'm, I'm telling you, Brian. The you couldn't have, I think, uh, President Xi of China making decisions for America that would be any more uh, uh, in, in the worst interest of America than what the Biden administration is doing. It, Go- this is stunning. Governor, do you have you thought about a run uh, in 2024? Are you thinking about another public, more public office uh, for you? Well, let me, let me tell you what I'm thinking about. I'm thinking about everything that we can do in between now and November of 2022 to make sure that we win back the House, that we stop these crazy ideas that are coming out of the woke left, the AOCs, the Pelosi's of the world, 
and that we take back control of the House, Kevin McCarthy becomes the next speaker, that we have some sensible policies put into place and to block the nonsense that's going on up there, and, and hopefully uh, even take back the Senate. That's where my focus is. I'm going to be in uh, uh, Florida with Rick Scott here the end of September doing some work for the Republican uh, Senatorial Committee. I'm, I've helped get Jake Elsey elected to the Congress, a great conservative former naval fighter pilot, uh, and Morgan Luttrell, Marcus Luttrell's brothers running for Congress. You got Dan Crenshaw. I mean, a powerful group of congressional uh, candidates and/or members of Congress right. that are. Riding up the hill on their white horses to save the republic. Well, let's talk about Texas. What would you do with the Texas renegades that left for Washington? They went to Portugal, some of them, and now came back. And now a judge has permitted their arrest. They will not allow these new, uh, the new voting rules to be implemented as of right now. As a governor, if your objective is to get this passed, what do you do? Do you arrest them? Well, they did this in 2003, if my memory serves me correct. When I was governor, we were, had a redistricting going on. Uh, it, it was the Senate at that particular point in time. You obviously were a bicameral. You got to have both uh, a quorum in both houses before you can do business. They went to New Mexico, and and, and we we appeal to their constituents. We appeal to their sensibilities of, look, you're not going to win every vote. I didn't win every vote as governor, but you got to come back and do your work. I think in particular these House members that are in potentially swing districts, the longer they stay out, the more opportunity for them not to serve in, in, con or in, the, in the So House you, would, you don't know if you'd arrest them? Governor, you think you would arrest them? Oh, I, I mean, that, that's an option. D don't don't get me wrong. I know what the rules of the House are, and the rules of the House say that the that the Speaker can uh, put a call on the House, and that the law enforcement can go and and bring them back and keep them in uh, the, the the House chambers until you get a quorum. And I suspect that will happen if they don't come to their senses and recognize. And I just think it's, it's, it's such a bad message for some of these members who live in districts that could go either way. Because yeah. if, you don't want to, if you don't want to do the work, if you don't want to show up, then you know what? We'll just fire you. Governor uh, Rick Perry, thanks so much. I uh, look forward to finding out more about this, uh, uh, this, this cleansing, this bio uh, cleansing. Yeah, integrate, integrated viral protection. I'll send you some details on it. This is fascinating stuff, Brian. I'm telling you. If we're looking to, to stop this and the next thing that comes along, what, whether it's influenza, whatever the virus may be, whether it's an anthrax spore, whatever the pathogen is, this will capture it and kill it. Got it. Makes total sense to me. Governor Rick Perry, busy guy. Thanks so much, Governor. So long, Brian. God bless you, brother. Back at you at one 408 7669 Actually, special thanks to Rick Perry. He helped me with the Sam Houston special. He's a big Sam Houston guy who's distant relative. He's distantly related uh, to Sam Houston, which, by the way, Sam Houston, the Alamo Avengers, also on BrianKillMe.com, signed. Newsmakers and newsbreakers, hear it first, only on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Get this and all your favorite Fox News podcasts ad-free on Apple Podcasts with Fox News Podcasts Plus. Just go to foxnewspodcasts.com for all the details. If you're interested in it, Brian's talking about it. You're with Brian Kilmeade.
Your dress code has clearly changed here in the last day since the Taliban took over Kabul. Is it safe there? Is it less safe for you? Obviously, you're reporting from the street, but but what are considerations right now for, for foreign journalists like yourself? Well, we've been told that we're free to report here. We're very cautious. We have good lines into the Taliban. Anytime we want to shoot video on the street, we'll stop and we'll go and ask them. For the most part, it hasn't been a problem. Occasionally, my gender does flummox them at the entrance to the presidential palace, as you saw, it was sort of an uncomfortable moment, and they were shooing me away uh, and, and sort of asking why they, uh, my colleagues had brought a woman uh, with them, which is, you know, frankly, to be expected and, and not unusual. I will say also, Brianna, a lot less women on the streets today. Normally, Kabul, it's still a conservative society. Women do wear the headscarf, but not quite as tightly as this. You might see them with some hair showing. You might see them wearing colors. You might see them wearing slightly more shapely silhouettes than I'm wearing in this abaya. Uh, today, seeing a lot more burkas on the streets and far fewer women. And just chaos in the airport. In case you don't know, at least three people have died hanging out in the, uh, I guess, the landing gear of the plane. They fell out of the sky. Others jumping on the plane were just crushed. Uh, there were people on the circumference of the, on the perimeter of the airport uh, who were shot. And we are shooting uh, our Marines and uh, our Army personnel are trying to secure it. They can't, so they stopped incoming flights. And by the way, in case you wonder uh, if President Biden has any regrets, he says no. We have not seen them. We're just hearing reports. And guess who helped President Biden come up with the worst evacuation plan and military strategy in modern American history? Well, go back in Politico. Allison just handed me this. The day was uh, uh, April 25th, 2021. Vice President Harris said she had a key role in President Biden's Afghanistan withdrawal decision. Thanks. Thanks, Vice President. The next thing we're going to hear is the Vice President will oversee the evacuation of our personnel from Afghanistan. Then we know for sure it could, if the answer to the question, can it get worse? Yes, that would be worse. Uh, We're going to follow the series of events. This is happening in real time, uh, and you can't look away. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Live from the Fox News radio studios in New York City, fresh off the set of Fox and Friends, it's America's receptive voice, Brian Kilmeade. Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Brian Kilmeade Show from New York, heard around the country and heard around the world. Means more than that, uh, means more uh, around the world than ever before. This just in, the president has decided to change plans, not come back to the White House on Wednesday. Now he's coming back today at 1 o'clock. At 3.45, he will deliver remarks on Afghanistan. Reports are widely confirmed that he is stunned by the series of events that's taken place. Uh, If you've been in a vacuum, if you did other things this weekend, just know in a matter of days, uh, the Taliban have taken the entire country. The president, Gahani, has left. Uh, he has left nobody in his place, and he's left the palace. The Taliban now in control. We are scrambling to get American uh, American uh, personnel out of there, as well as our allies, in one airport, in, in the Kabul airport. The other bases we basically have given up. Joining me now is the man who led the surge in Afghanistan, as well as Iraq. You know him well. Every, everybody in America does. General David Petraeus, General your thoughts at this hour at the situation the American military faces? 
Well, first of all, the situation is absolutely heartbreaking. Um, it is tragic. Uh, it's disastrous and, and so forth. And, you know, we can argue about where the blame should go and all the rest of that. Uh, but the urgency of the moment should be to determine how to take care of those whom we've so far left behind, uh, the battlefield interpreters who qualified for the special immigrant visa and their family members, the many others who served and supported us and therefore are marked men and women right now. I, I don't think it is an overstatement to say that this is uh, a Dunkirk moment or perhaps a Saigon moment, certainly a more emotionally charged reference. Uh, and we need to recognize that, and we need to act in accordance with that recognition. We should put the forces on the ground, the, the most capable American forces. Um, we should ensure that they've got all of the drones and close air support and other assets available in case uh, the situation gets worse for those who are trying to secure Kabul airport. Um, we should communicate clearly to the Taliban uh, that they should not impede uh, the movement of individuals that we are trying to evacuate. And I think in, in accordance with some of what you were just discussing, we should certainly consider um, some effort, again, negotiate with the Taliban at this point in time. Again, they do have an interest in not at this point uh, getting into it with our military. Uh, they've actually achieved what they sought out to achieve. Um, and I, I wouldn't rule out the possibility of establishing an evacuation location at Kandahar uh, or at, at Bagram airfields. Uh, you, so I think that yeah. should be the focus right now. Um, the relitigation of the past, uh, the uh, you know focus on Al Qaeda and the Islamic State, which I'm confident will be will be riveted on that in the months that lie ahead, albeit with much more difficulty and much greater cost because we're going to have to do that without bases in Afghanistan or even in the Central uh, or South Asia region uh, and do it from the Gulf states. And that will be, again, exceedingly costly. Uh, but the focus should be uh, on those that we have, again, so far left behind. I want you to hear Jake Sullivan uh, got that question today. Uh, he is... Uh, here's what he says. He's the national security advisor for President Biden. Cut three. Given how quickly the Taliban have taken the country, are you sure you can hold the airport long enough to get all the people out you need to? We've made very clear to the Taliban that if they disrupt our operations, if they menace or attack our forces, that there will be a severe and devastating response. We intend to secure the airport. We intend to move through these evacuations. And then we intend to complete the retrograde. This is not without risk. So that's a little about what you said. So we have about we have about five thousand around the uh, airport. We understand. I don't have satellite images, but General Petraeus, we saw we're watching these scenes of these planes landing and people are running alongside as the planes taxiing the runway. How secure can that airport be with five thousand military members when we're seeing that? Well, inadequately, obviously, um, and again. As I said earlier, we should deploy whatever is required. It should be our most capable forces. Um, so this is time literally for JSOC operators who can 
respond to these kinds of situations, certainly augmented very substantially by great paratroopers from the 82nd Airborne, by the Marine teams that secure embassies, the FAST teams, and so forth, um, and with tons of stuff overhead, menacingly over uh, that uh, the Taliban recognize that they should not impede this. The challenge is, of course, that how do you separate out those who merit uh, our uh, protection, uh, our evacuation, and so forth, from those who candidly do not? Uh, and that's going to be very, very difficult. And at the end of the day, uh, this is something that will not be – you can't micromanage this from Washington. You can give some very general guidance, uh, and then we're going to have to empower those who are on the ground, uh, military and diplomatic leaders working together on the ground, and they're going to have to make terribly painful, difficult, and, dip and, and, and tough decisions about who stays and who gets to go. Uh, that's going to be wrenching. Uh, it's going to be, again, exceedingly difficult. Um, and it will be that way right up to the end, because once you've collapsed the perimeter uh, and everybody's on the last aircraft or helicopter, uh, it's going to be a really tough moment. Uh, but this is where we find ourselves now. Uh, it is of our doing, and we should recognize that. Uh, and, you know, what Jake Sullivan said, I think, is is spot on. Now we have to execute. And again, there's nothing easy uh, about what is going to follow. This is going to be exceedingly hard. They emptied the prisons uh, because we abandoned the bases and the Afghans abandoned their guns in their positions. Some were paid off, we understand, according to a few experts. Did you, they say this was not foreseeable. General Austin indicated in a conference call with Congress yesterday that we didn't know the Afghans were going to drop their weapons and not fight. Is he being disingenuous? I don't want to put your motivations, but does that surprise General Petraeus, who actually led the surge in Afghanistan years ago, that they put they ended up not fighting? And by the way, uh, then General Lloyd Austin, Lieutenant General at that time, uh, did a magnificent job as the operational level commander, the second of those after General Odierno uh, during the surge in, in Iraq. Uh, a very, very competent, competent uh, military leader. Look, I think, I mean, it's very clear that those in key positions, at the very least, um, did not appreciate the psychological blow uh, to Afghan forces and leaders um, of the announcement that we would withdraw, then the actual withdrawal, because I think many still believed, gosh, you know, they're going to they're going to look down into the the canyon and they're going to pull back. Uh, they're not going to go over the precipice. And then something that many have not fully appreciated the withdrawal of the 18,000 or so contractors who maintained the very sophisticated U.S.-provided helicopters and planes that were the most important capability of the Afghan National Security Forces. Because, look, Brian, once Afghan soldiers out on far-flung bases and outposts and so forth realize that there is no one coming to the rescue, once these local leaders recognize that reality, the, the, the tribal elders and so forth, once they realize that, um, they, they sort of have three alternatives. One is to withdraw in an orderly manner. Uh, the second is to flee. Uh, and the third is to surrender. Uh, and if you're in a country where people 
have have figured out that you know they recognize that there are moments where they must be in a sense chameleon like they have to recognize the reality on the ground and accommodate that and i think there was certainly not a full appreciation of those realities in this situation though certainly some of us explicitly cautioned about the psychological impact that could be infectious in other words one part of the military sees that others are surrendering, throwing down their weapons, cutting deals. Uh, and they started to ask, gosh, maybe that's what we should be doing since, again, the Afghan commandos can't be gotten to us because our Air Force's readiness is eroding because the contractors who maintain it have gone to the Gulf states and are trying to do it through FaceTime or Zoom. Um, and you, you did mention to me, too, and those all reports is confirmed, and I spend the morning watching Sky News to get the British perspective. There was pressure on Boris Johnson. There were some people saying on camera, why doesn't he stay? We don't need the Americans. You know, we have to keep ourselves safe. They're worried about another influx of refugees that are really going to hit uh, Europe more than them. But they lost 400 guys. And they wanted to stay. It was pretty clear there wasn't a lot of pressure to get out of Afghanistan there. In fact... I don't really feel there was a lot of pressure, and I do news every day, six hours minimum, on air, let alone the studying that goes into it. There was never a lot of stories about the American people getting restless about Afghanistan because it wasn't a hot war at the time. So this was one of those odd times in which NATO wanted to stay. When they first came to our aid, they were the ones almost blindsided by the withdrawal. Well, I think there's much to what you say. And as you know, you and I have had this dialogue discussion for many years now. And my counsel was for a, quote, sustainable, and sustainability is measured in the expenditure of our blood and treasure, a sustainable, sustained commitment, which, by the way, might have actually uh, given us a firmer foundation from which to negotiate. You know, if you tell the enemy, uh, as the previous administration clearly conveyed, uh, that we want to leave and we want an agreement that essentially allows us to do that, um, you're not negotiating from a particularly strong position. But a sustainable, sustained commitment, uh, I think, was certainly uh, a very viable option. And again, as you know, uh, that is what a number of us counseled. It's what the bipartisan uh, commission chartered by Congress, uh, led by a former commander in Afghanistan, General Joe Dunford, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, and again, made up of Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it is what they uh, recommended as well uh, in their report, which came out now a number of months ago. Um, so yet, were there alternatives? Of course there were alternatives, and, and some of us counseled those. But again, let's get past that for the moment. Um, let's again focus on the real urgency uh, at this time, which is to figure out how to take care of those uh, who are in whose security is in jeopardy uh, because of the work that they did with and for us. You know, our battlefield interpreter, the battlefield interpreters that we had there were absolutely vital to the effort. It's why Congress and the administrations, many administrations, have created the special immigrant visa program. And yet the bureaucracy of that was so enormous that it defeated the efforts of those on the ground to, to navigate that in many, many cases. I mean, and again, if you disagree with that, how are there 18,000 that are still left behind? Or maybe it now be maybe down to 
16 or 17,000 times several family members each in many cases. Um, so, yeah. We need to see to their, and, and again, they shared risk and hardship with our men and women on the ground There's for no two argument. years, two I, years I to qualify you. for that. Our son is a rifle, was a rifle platoon leader. Again, um, those battlefield interpreters were absolutely critical to what it was that we sought to do. Uh, and we need to take care of them. We need to take care of the others that we need to take care of women students, frankly, I think, that are in jeopardy. My wife and I supported a, a woman at uh, the American University of Afghanistan uh, every year in recent years. Um, we've got to try to get people out of harm's way, recognizing, again, the right. enormous difficulties, the triaging that is going to have to take place, and the enormous security uh, that will have to be provided for that effort, because these are going to be very, very desperate people who are trying to do anything to get out of that country. And, and just the fact that America lets people down just agonizes me because it's everything we don't want to do and we always believe that we wouldn't do. And I want you to hear what Liz Cheney told me uh, a short time ago about she worries in the few, for the future. Listen. We should not have been withdrawing in the first place, in my view. Um, but the idea that we've got these scenes of death and chaos is really uh, it, it's just going to be hugely damaging for the United States globally. You know, people will look at that. How do you think people in Taiwan feel? How do you think people in Ukraine feel? Watching these scenes, thinking, well, can we count on America? And, you know, America's security uh, depends upon our allies being able to count on us. So we've got we've got to fix uh, this. It's not going to be easy. So do you agree with her worry as she projects forward? Well, Certainly. I, I think, again, it's it's just sort of undeniable that this is a blow to America's credibility um, and, frankly, to our reputation around the world. Again, I don't know how anyone could could argue with that assessment. Uh, if you look at the pic pictures, if you look at the situation, if you realize how catastrophic uh, this is, I, again, I think that is not not arguable. The question is, again, how do, what do you do? Uh, what now? Um, and as I've argued, uh, what now is, number one, uh, first and foremost, take care of those we've so far left behind. Uh, and then let's figure out, as we did after Vietnam, uh, how do we reestablish uh, our credibility? You know, if we are going to say that America is back, um, we have to you, – you obviously can't do that rhetorically. You have mm -hmm. to do it with actions. They have to be on the ground in various places. Interestingly, I think we have gotten it right. And by the way, I broadly agree with this administration's foreign policy, uh, you know, its efforts to achieve a coherent, yeah. comprehensive General whole of government right. with uh, an S on the end approach to China. Uh, right. But this one, this particular situation, obviously – uh, is not helpful when it comes to our credibility and reputation. General, thanks so much. You always try to stay out of politics, and I try not to lead you there, uh, but I think your message was well-received. Well I appreciate it. General David Petraeus, thanks. Thank you, Brian. Newsmakers and newsbreakers, hear it first, only on The Brian Kilmeade Show. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. Radio that makes you think. 
This is the Brian Kilmeade Show. Hey, welcome back, everybody. On the other side, we're going to talk to Brett Fair about these fast-moving developments in Afghanistan. But and by the way, we're still in the middle of a pandemic, and we still have a lot to uh, a lot to discuss uh, domestically here. Uh, with the spending programs and everything like that, but nothing is more important now than Afghanistan. Really, I, the only time bigger maybe was the Afghanistan invasion back in October of 2001. So now we see, as we get closer and closer to the 20-year mark since 9-11, uh, we're about to—we have lost that country. And why did we lose that country? Because we chose to. We chose to. We chose to pull out. Uh, I wasn't for President Trump's deal, but I am convinced, especially after talking to his people, he never would have let Kabul get overrun, especially in a matter of weeks. I mean, two, we couldn't deal with the outcome of Vietnam. It was 1975, and Gerald Ford was president. It was uh, the impeach. Nixon was out by that time. This is uh, Joe Biden. Oh, you know, uh, Donald Trump's got this deal together, so I, I'm really cornered. I guess I have to go through with it. So in the middle of fighting, in the beginning of fighting season, he pulls out all his troops and let the Taliban run right through. And he said, no more air cover. We're totally done. We're finished. We're through. So now Gahani leaves on Sunday. And on Monday, the Taliban got it. And now we have to get between 50 and 80,000 people out of there with one plane and run, one runway. Fast moving developments. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Breaking news, unique opinions. Hear it all on the Brian Kilmeade Show. Whatever happens in Afghanistan, if there is a significant deterioration uh, in security, um, that could well happen. We've discussed this uh, before. I don't think it's going to be something that happens from a Friday to a Monday. And he was right. It was Friday to Sunday. Uh, that's when they were in Kabul. Uh, joining us now is Brett Baer. Brett, seen a lot of stories breaking on your watch. Uh, this one... So rapidly, there is nobody in the Biden administration that is not surprised. Now we find out that President Biden, instead of coming back on Wednesday, is coming back today, going to land in 90 minutes, and he'll be speaking at a 345 Eastern time. What could he possibly say except blame Trump? Yeah, I think that that's probably the M.O., um, and that essentially his hands were tied is the message. But, um, you know, how it went down, Brian, and how it's, you know, materializing and with those images of the planes leaving Kabul airport and people hanging on to the tires, um, this is something that'll be an image that survives a long time. And uh, how this war was unwound, whether you uh, point back to the previous administration and the negotiation with the Taliban or not, this administration is in charge of it right now, and that's going to have an impact. So uh, these fast-moving events, we're no longer in control of Kabul. We no longer have assets there. So if they decide to go after the airport where a lot of their citizens are looking to get out and like where Americans are located, uh, that would be brazen. That might be suicidal, but we really could be backed in the corner because most of our assets have left the theater. No, it's true. And there's some really brave Marines holding the um, holding the airport and that space. 
as Americans are trying to leave, as well as Afghans trying to leave, and and the terror in those people's faces as they're going to the airport um, gives you a sense of what they feel the Taliban is going to be like once once again. And um, you know we've seen the anecdotal stories of what's happened in some of these cities that have already gone down. Um, now it looks like it's happening in the Kabul very quickly. They're, they're on the record almost a couple of weeks ago saying all this was not going to happen. Remember, John Kirby said this a couple of days ago, cut 10. Right now, without getting into a battlefield assessment every day, I don't want to do that. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, Kabul is not uh, right now um, uh, in an imminent threat environment. Man, was that wrong. Dead wrong. And, um, you know, I, you also wonder, after almost 20 years, come this October, why we and our allies could not train an effective Afghan security force and why they were any unable to stand up a force that could protect these cities. Um, you know, the Taliban is not that sophisticated. What they have is a calendar, and they don't operate on weeks and days. They operate in years, and, um, and, and we're seeing the result of that. But, you know, this whole thing, you know, you know this better than anyone, Brett. A lot of these people are in your phone that make these decisions. So yep. if you talk to them, we were their leadership. So if we told them where to fight, where to go, they would for the most part. They'll be green on blue. We know about that, and it's terrible. But the captains and colonels left with America, sort of the air power. So they no longer had it. So you basically had a choice, as General Petraeus just explained on this show. You had a choice. You know, your family's going to be killed. You're probably going to get killed. We could fight it out. Or you could put your guns down and you could walk away. And they just said, okay, the Americans have left. We have no hope anyway. You know, we're being outnumbered and nobody else is fighting, so I'm going to leave. And Gahani yeah. is, uh, the, is an anti-leader. He had no uh, interest in, in leading that country. And he was grifting off the top by two uh, excuse me, Trump officials that I spoke to last night, and he, everybody knew the aid he was taking. He was pocketing a lot of it, not giving it out to the people. So when they walked up the middle, they would sprint up the middle. They'd put their flag in the middle of the province, and they would take that city. They'd look around and say, you really want to fight? You know how brutal we are? You have no American support? They're not coming back? So they quit. How General yeah. Austin and company couldn't figure that out is beyond me. Yeah, you're right. I mean, listen, 3,000... U.S. troops on the ground in Afghanistan could provide the backbone for a lot of those decisions. But without those 3,000 troops, even though the number is fairly small, if you think in the big picture, we'd had 150,000 there at one point. Um, so, yeah, without that, it's it, it, there are many time after time they're just putting down the weapons. So we just had General Petraeus on 20 minutes ago, and here's what he said in the big picture, um, a big picture about what this means for the U.S. It's just sort of undeniable that this is a blow to America's credibility um, and, frankly, to our reputation around the world. Again, I don't know how anyone could could argue with that assessment. Uh, if you look at the pic pictures, if you look at the situation, if you realize how catastrophic uh, this is, I, again, I think that is not not arguable. The question is, again, how do, what do you do? 
And he was really concerned about everybody that's helped us, as we've been hearing. But they did not put effective systems in place to get these people out in any orderly fashion. And now they cut off flights. So because it's so chaotic with people hiding in the landing gear and falling out of the sky and jumping on, jumping on the tires and running along with the plane, now they stop the flights. I mean, this is in real time. Brett, we, we usually reflect on things and preview things. This is happening now. No, it's exactly right. And those images of the people falling from the plane because they're so desperate to get out of a country that's going to be controlled by the Taliban is really something. And the general's right. I mean, this is not just a message about Afghanistan. It's a message about U.S. Uh, projection around the world. If you don't think China and Russia is looking at this very closely— <clears throat> they are. And, you know, there's a number of decisions that have been made that obviously people question about Nord Stream 2, about, you know, not really calling out the Chinese on COVID, on a number of things that the Biden administration has done or not done that raise questions about, you know, our forcefulness, respectability in the world. This one trumps all of that because the images and the horrific, you know, storylines are coming out. As we speak, it is, uh, Brett. I want you to. I want. To, I know you don't watch a lot of CNN. I saw this clip and I wanted to share it with you because it's a CNN historian who basically they just go out of their way to find something that Donald Trump did wrong in the golf course these days. This is this is uh, Neftali. I forgot. Where's that? Oh, here it is. Tim Neftali. It's uh, cut twenty eight. He's a CNN presidential historian. If Afghanistan res- returns to being a safe haven. For Islamists, what have we spent 20 years doing there? So yes, we beat al-Qaeda. We beat that generation of al-Qaeda. But there is another generation, which we saw with ISIS, of Islamists who are willing to do harm to, 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 to the rest of the world. Are they going to find a home in the, in the Taliban-controlled Afghanistan? That is the great challenge. And if that occurs, this is the Saigon moment for President Biden and that this will be a legacy, an albatross around his neck for the rest of time. He famously likes to convene historians to talk about how great he could be. What will historians say about this? I think they're going to say you're absolutely right. There's certain things you're never going to beat. And if you don't get this right, and it is too late, I don't know how he spins his way out of this. I can't imagine that this, this is not going to be the first thing that comes to mind when you think of Joe Biden. That's true. These images, how it was done, it's not... Was it done? Because let's, let's remember that the, the political impetus for getting U.S. troops out of Afghanistan crossed party lines. However, there were real questions about how it was all going to happen, how we were going to transition to get out of there. And people were sick of hearing conditions on the ground, and this would enable us. But that small force uh, did provide uh, some of that backbone. And how this is happening with the chaos at the airport will be a legacy for, for President Biden. Sorry, my allergies are kicking in here in D.C. So. No, I hear it. But, uh, Brad, I still hear you loud and clear. So what are you thinking about tonight? What's going to be on your panel? Like, where do you think you'll lead? Have you talked to any officials? Yeah, yeah. I know Admiral Kirby talks to you a lot. Yeah, and I've, I've talked to a number of generals um, and some folks who have just been over there. And um, the, the main message is sadness. Tonight we've got the speech, obviously, at 345, and I'll – help um, Martha or Neil or whomever around that. But we've got um, a couple of experts on the on the show up top and then an expanded panel to kind of digest the moment, including Brit Hume and others. 
who knows? He's been there, and we're coming up on 20 years since 9-11. Who thought that we'd have this storyline, uh, this chapter to go over, but we do. Uh, Brett Baird, thanks so much. Appreciate it. All right, see you, Brett. All right, one 866 When we come back, we'll wrap things up, too, and um, wrap things up for this hour. Uh, but here is Jake Sullivan before I go. Jake Sullivan trying to tell everybody and explain everybody that this is the policy they were handed. So and that this is not that big of a deal in terms of helicopters choppering out, like, for example, in Saigon, where famously it lands on the embassy, uh, the U.S. embassy in South Vietnam. And as many people can get on, can get on. And if those who don't probably end up killed and de- uh, dead along with their families. And he was trying to explain this is not the same thing. Cut to. To be fair, the helicopter has been the mode of transport from our embassy to the airport for the last 20 years. But you know the larger that is, point. That is, it's not the helicopter. It's not the mechanism. Forth, so. No, no. It's to, the last-minute scramble. You know that. It's the last-minute scramble when the assurances from the president himself were this was not what we were going to see. It is certainly the case that the speed with which cities fell uh, was much greater than anyone anticipated, including uh, the Afghans, uh, including... Uh, many of the analysts who looked hard at this problem. You ignored the military experts and the and the nonpartisan, bipartisan panel that told you your options in Afghanistan. But now you're saying you surprised even the analysts back in a moment. Diving deep into today's top stories, it's Brian Kilmeade. The fastest three hours in radio. You're with Brian Kilmeade. Joe Biden for 20 years has thought that he knew more about Afghanistan than any anybody else. He was in the you know Senate Foreign Relations Committee. He was uh, in the Obama White House where he he argued strongly in favor of a much reduced American footprint in Afghanistan and he was overruled by his president and he finally gets this chance now as president to do things the way he thought things should have been done all along. So in so many ways, this is completely on President Biden. And to his credit, he has been owning it. He has not backed away from the decision he's made. But as we can see, the catastrophic results are sort of on display. Almost. I almost agreed with the New York Times Pentagon correspondent to the end. He's owned it. Really? Did you read his statement yesterday? He's going to speak in a few hours today. Uh, This is the last paragraph. Therefore, when I became president, I faced a choice, followed through with the deal, the Trump cut, with a brief extension to get our forces and our ally forces out safely or ramp up our presence and send more American troops to fight once again in another country's civil conflict. I was the fourth president to preside over the American two presidents in Afghanistan, two Republicans, two Democrats. I would not and will not pass that word on to somebody else. Know what you will do? You'll make America more in peril because no one was asking you to keep an active war going since 2014. It's been scaled back. And since uh, for 18 months, there's been no American casualties. And there was 2,500 there. There probably should have been about 4,000 there. And we would have had an eye on the Taliban, an eye on Al-Qaeda and ISIS, intelligence in the region, a, a multiple bases in an operation that's between Russia, China, and Pakistan, and we would have we would have beat them down, and we were beating them down. 
President Trump started the talks. But my goodness, do you actually believe this is the one deal that you didn't want to break of the President Trump that you couldn't break? You destroyed the border because of him. You destroyed the, the missile deal with Russia. The president ripped it up. You put it back together. The Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the stopping the uh, XL pipeline. Uh, you had 36, 36 executive orders upending President Trump's agenda. This is the one you couldn't stop? Please don't insult us at 340. If you're going to say that and someone's going to put that in the prompter for you to squint and try to read, just just uh, shut it down and don't waste our time. Here's Phil Rucker, somebody you probably don't hear from. He's on This Week with George Stephanopoulos. Cut 27. This has been planned for months. This exit was known about in Washington for a long time. And what's amazing is President Biden ran for office as the foreign policy expert, decades of service in the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And yet look at how... Uh, Poorly planned this seems to be right now. It is a calamity playing out hour by hour on television and one that the experts in the government here had not anticipated happening. And it speaks to how challenging the situation is, but it also raises some serious questions about the lack of intelligence or lack of foresight among the national security team to not foresee that that these cities could fall so quickly. So you just watch. Now we're going to hear this. And I already got one today. You read in The Washington Post. General Milley, according to reports in their final meetings before the withdrawal plan was hatched, and I'm not reading this, it's, uh, I'm paraphrasing, uh, gave an impassioned speech to leave 4,000 troops there, but the, uh, ultimately his advice wasn't heeded. Hmm. I wonder who leaked that. Could it be a member of General Milley's staff? Well, maybe he did do that. And I might be tempted to do the same thing. If somebody goes totally against my wishes and I'm getting blamed for it because their deal fell flat on its face like I told you, I might leak it too. But maybe not the same day while it's unfolding. All right? Maybe someone, a staffer, just jotted that down, an interpreter, I don't know, uh, from inside there. General Austin, who General Petraeus likes, but uh, I haven't seen much uh, leadership out of him. He hasn't said much either. What we're now watching is on the ground. Tens of thousands have to be rounded up. The paperwork was never processed. That's what's caused this chaos. The Taliban's coming in. And I think they're smart not to, not to attack any of our forces coming in. But it looks like the military experts are saying we need more on the ground. One of them is the president of the foreign relations, Richard Haas, often a critic of President Trump, uh, says this about our decision. Cut 29. There hadn't been a combat fatality since February 2020. So I think in one conversation we, we need to have is why was it that the previous president and this president both felt so compelled to leave Afghanistan? That, to me, is one of the, the big questions. What I don't think is debatable is how we did it. This is a fiasco. This is uh, you know, a big part of life is execution or implementation. And this is just malpractice. This has just been a, a fiasco by any and every measure. But I think the bigger policy questions for today are why was it? We were unwilling to sustain a small presence that seemed to provide a kind of anchor or foundation, not for winning a war, not for bringing peace, but simply for avoiding what we're now seeing on our screens. Why was that considered untenable? I don't know. And I said it here. No, people are tired of Afghanistan. You don't want to talk about it. I said this over and over again. I go, why don't we just talk about it? We keep an eye on terror. We're located. This this is a very auspicious place for us to be. We could definitely be effective in that area. I didn't trust Pakistan, never trust China, would never trust Russia. And uh, on the other side, you have all the stands. So you have all the stands around there who are in and out of the Soviet uh, orbit, uh, now the Russian orbit, and we had some access there. I'm going to be on the five tonight, and I'll be talking more about this, and we'll see what, what we have to say about the president. 
Trump's speech at that time, excuse me, President Trump, I wish, President Biden's speech at that time, he lands back at the White House at one. We'll speak in two and a half hours. The Fox News Rundown, a contrast of perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Your daily dose of news twice a day. Featuring insight from top newsmakers, reporters, and Fox News contributors. Listen and subscribe now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.